Hey, this is Carl Anderson. I'm the senior pastor of Sierra Bible Church, and this is our sermons podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today, and I hope that this message fills your soul with hope, helps you see the beauty of Jesus, and allows you to feel the love that God has for you. If you want more information about experiencing God's love for you personally, head over to sierrabible.org and contact one of our pastors. I love you, and I'm praying for you. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you, Nina. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, everybody, for being here. Uh, Welcome. We are glad that you are here. Um, If this is your first time here, uh, we want to extend a special welcome, Uh, not just a normal welcome, but a special welcome to you. And uh, if you are a guest with us and this is your first time, uh, my name is Cassidy Hastings, and I am one of the pastors here, and I'll be sharing out of the Word this morning. Um, And uh, so, yeah, we'll be continuing in our study on Hebrews that's going to last five and a half years, uh, and we're just kind of getting going on it and stuff. But uh, no, we're uh, doing a, a long study through the book of Hebrews, and it's been great uh, just kind of looking at how Jesus is better. It's the title of the whole series, and uh, looking at how Jesus is better than all the stuff that has come before. So we're going to be in Hebrews 9. Uh, as Kyle just read, we're going to be in verses 15 through 22. Uh, so I encourage you to read along. If you are watching online, either live or later on, and you want to follow along, uh, you can do that uh, just by Googling Hebrews 9, and then we'll be in the ESV version is where I'll be preaching from today. So uh, some of you guys know a little bit about my story and how I ended up here, and uh, some of you don't. So I just want to share a little bit about that uh, this morning. Um, So my family's originally from Tennessee, and we lived up there for a number of years. And then in uh, I was going to school, going to college there, and then my parents moved out here in 2003. And so my dad was working for a company that opened a distribution center on the West Coast, and I was finishing up college in 2005. I got my degree in youth ministry and history, and uh, when I moved out, I moved out in May after I graduated in 05, and I was working for him for a couple of years at the warehouse before I came on staff here. Um, but I remember specifically uh, just one day in particular. It was in Ju- uh, January of 2007, so I'd been working for him for almost two years, and uh, we had just found out that day um, that uh, there were three main distribution centers uh, in the U.S. that were servicing different Christian bookstores and uh, things. That's what, what his company did. And there were three main warehouses, and we had just found out that morning that one of the warehouses had shut down, like um, the the company had shut that down. And if it's like a, a reduction that quickly, like it's like, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. What's going to come out of that? So we were, we went to lunch. We were talking about it, and we were just kind of like, okay, this is kind of scary. This is sad. We knew some of the, a bunch of people that worked there and everything. And then, um, so we were talking about it and just kind of wondering if like maybe our our location was going to be next. What did this mean for the company? It was a sad, scary uh, moment in time. And so we got back from lunch and we go in the office and Pastor Greg, who was the senior pastor here uh, for a number of years, was was there waiting for us. And he said, hey, um, I want you to come be our youth pastor at Sierra Bible Church. <laughs> and it was like the day that we had that conversation and had this sad, scary news, like there was something new happening and something uh, beautiful that's happening. And so it was just a really crazy thing. That's how I ended up coming on staff here. It was back in April of that year that um, of 2007 that I joined the staff. And, and uh, God took something seemingly scary, sad, unnerving, right? Uh, but turned it into something beautiful, 
right? And he's in the business of doing that. And in today's text, we're going to see that God does this um, specifically through Jesus's death. And we're going to look at what Jesus's death accomplished and, and how, how something that was sad, uh, Jesus's death, actually turned into something beautiful, um, so if you want the big idea for the message this morning, uh, we're going to be looking at two main things that Jesus's death did. So the big idea in one sentence is that Jesus's death activates our inheritance and provides for our purification under the new covenant. And because of that, we as followers of Jesus can live lives of humility and gratitude. So we're going to look at how his death activates our inheritance and provides for our purification. Um, if, if this is kind of you're dropping in on this series, we've again been journeying through the book of Hebrews and uh, looking at how the person and work of Jesus radically transformed the author's understanding uh, of, of the old covenant, of all of these different things that were involved in the old covenant, about the high priest, about the sacrifices, about um, even like how Jesus is better than angels. We looked at that. And so he's, he's looking at this and helping his readers say, hey, Jesus is better than all of these things. And last week we saw in particular that Jesus provides a better redemption than the Old Testament sacrificial system because he entered the holy places once and for all. It's not a repetitive thing. He entered once and for all and by the means of his own blood, not by the blood of goats and bulls. His sacrifice doesn't just purify our flesh, but also purifies our consciences so that we don't try to rely on dead works to have access to him. There's a better redemption that has come. And the author kind of continues in, in this train of thought in our passage this morning, specifically focusing on how that happened, how that occurred through the death of Jesus. So we're going to be looking at how his death uh, released an inheritance and provides our purification. So in verses 15 through 17, we see that Jesus, Jesus's death releases an eternal inheritance for those who believe. Verse 15, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So I want to stop there and kind of walk through this. So the first thing that we see is that Jesus talks about how he entered in with the better blood of, than bulls and goats um, in, uh, in verses uh, 13. But it, it's saying that he's not just the sacrifice, he's also the mediator of that covenant. And that makes Jesus very, very unique. And we'll get into more of that next week and in the following weeks. But Jesus is unique because he is the mediator of this covenant. We are relying on him to mediate this new covenant. What's the effect of this? So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And so because of Jesus's death, those who are called get to receive what? The promised eternal inheritance. And how do we know this? Because a death has occurred that redeems them. So all these people who the better redemption is talking about all the failures of, of the people under the old covenant, Jesus redeems that. 
Jesus redeems the failures from the first covenant, under the first covenant. And what I want to highlight in this verse in particular is the, the two main parties. So in this passage, there are those who are called, and then there's the work of Jesus. And I want to show like how much Jesus is doing in this verse. So what is he doing? He's the mediator of a new covenant. He is the one who calls them. He's the one who owns the riches, and therefore he's the one who can promise the inheritance. Jesus is the one who dies, and he's the one that can redeem. All of that is just in that one verse. Now let's look at what the responsibility of is, is of those who are called in verse 15. We did two things. Those who are called in verse 15, we committed transgressions under the first covenant. So those who are called committed transgressions and received a promised eternal inheritance. I mean, in this one verse, there is so much grace and mercy. Because what did we deserve? We committed the transgressions, right? The people who came before committed the transgressions. So what did we deserve? We deserved judgment. But what did we get? What did we receive? We received redemption. We received an inheritance. And so I just wanted to point out how much grace and mercy are poured out in just this one verse. And when we see this idea of this inheritance, it's talking about an eternal inheritance. Inheritance an eternal inheritance, an eternal salvation. We talked about this last week in verse 12. It's an eternal redemption. See, God gave Israel a system all throughout the Old Testament that would provide temporary life and salvation. But it's because of Jesus's death, and that's what we're going to get into here in just a second. Because of Jesus's death, those who were called have an eternal redemption. They have an eternal, not a temporary, an eternal life, and salvation. It's because of Jesus's death that that redemption is secured. It's not because of us. It's because of what he did. How do we know that this inheritance is in effect right now? It's because the one who promised it has died. And that's what he continues on in verses 16 and 17. For where there is, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will only takes effect at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Now, in our English translations, uh, you might notice, depending on your translation, there's like a different word there in verses 16 and 17. Uh, some translations say will, some say testament, some say covenant, um, but it's the same Greek word as covenant. Um, and, and what the author is doing is he's using this play on words because a covenant, right, is an agreement between two parties. And as we understand God's interaction with Israel, he's saying the covenant depends on me, but it's still an agreement between humanity and God. But what is a will? What is a, a, a last will and testament is kind of the idea there. It's a, it's a guarantee, right, of it's a legally binding final directions of the deceased. And so those are kind of similar, but it's the same Greek word. And he's using this play on words to, to kind of say that in order for the final directions to be executed, the inheritance and the inheritance to be released, what has to happen? There has to be a death, right? So um, in, in uh, 
January of 2017, Aaron and I had the opportunity uh, to go for a few days um, to Hawaii uh, with, with her sister. And, uh, and it was the first time um, that uh, we had been gone from our boys for an extended, like the longest time that we had been away from our boys. And uh, also, it was the first time, I think, that we had flown over the ocean. <laughs> and, uh, and so we were kind of thinking through like, you know, worst case scenarios, right? Like, okay, the plane's going to crash on an island and, uh, and, or something's going to, a big ball of fire. And so, uh, we want to make sure that our kids are provided for and, and all of that. So what did we do? We made a very simple, basic will, and hopefully it's good enough and everything. But, but what did, what did we do? We spelled out, you know, okay, like if this happens, then this is what, we want to happen with our possessions and our kids and, um, and what, what we, what we desire, right? Um, I don't know if you've done that, but, uh, it's kind of sobering <laughs> to think about like your own mortality and think about like what life is going to look like without you here and everything. But, um, but we, we were like, we need to do this. So we did that before we left. And, uh, thankfully we are still here. Um, thankfully, uh, we're not dead. Um, but, uh, but the, the boys, they won't get the benefits. They haven't gotten the benefits, right? Why? Because I'm alive, right? Because I'm not dead, thankfully. Um, so the, the will is still valid, right? But it's not enacted. It's not taken effect until there is a death. In order to enact that last will and testament of our death, or our death would need to be firmly established, right? Like there had to be like, okay, they're dead. So now the boys get all our hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Um, so it's, uh, I know this concept is pretty straightforward and simple and everything, but, uh, but they're like the ramific- the spiritual ramifications of what these three verses are saying are huge. It's huge. The first thing that we see is that followers of Jesus are beneficiaries of an eternal inheritance. Followers of Jesus are beneficiaries of an eternal inheritance. For those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, what's the qualifying thing in verse 15? Those, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are listed as a beneficiary on the will of Jesus Christ. You're listed as a beneficiary on that. Typically, beneficiaries don't make this negotiation, right, with like what they get and like, hey, I want more of that or whatever. Um, Whose responsibility, whose authority is it to delegate the inheritance? It's the one making the will, right? It's the one who has the riches and they get to say how it's going to go. If you're a follower of Jesus, you get an eternal inheritance. You get eternal life and salvation, Thank you, Jose. <laughs> think about, think about like just inheritance in general. Like what is the best inheritance that you could think of that you could get? It, like money, cars, houses, any of that stuff. You get, if you are a follower of Jesus, you get eternal life. Jesus gives those who are called an eternal inheritance. Secondly, we see that that inheritance is available right now. 
A lot of times we think of inheritance as like something that happens in the future, right? But it's all relative to the death of the person who made the will. Okay, when did Jesus die? In the past. His death has been established. That inheritance is available now. We're listed as beneficiaries, and we get to participate in that eternal salvation even now. We get to taste of that in this present age. It's not just something that's coming in the age to come. It's something that happens right now. And again, it's not because of anything that we've done. It's not because we're great. Why is it? Because we have been called. Jesus called us. He added us to his will. He died. We now have an eternal inheritance. And the third thing that this does in these three verses is that we see that Jesus's death inaugurated the new covenant. Now, I mentioned that the the author to the Hebrews uses this play on words between covenant and will or testament. But the reality was in both cases, uh, a death had to be established in order to make a covenant effective and a death had to be established in order to make a will effective. The covenant or will only took effect at the once the death was confirmed. The new covenant between humanity and God was inaugurated the moment Jesus died because a death had been established. This means that we have a new way of relating to God that is better than the old covenant. It's better. Jesus' death inaugurated that new covenant. And as I, I think that as the author is thinking about like how Jesus' death uh, kind of opened up not just this inheritance, but also this new covenant, his thoughts go back to the old covenant. Because in verse 18, he picks up and says, Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. These coming verses, we're going to see that the means of purification, according to the old covenant, is shed blood. A death had to be established. Verses 19 through 21. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he, Moses, took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. So this is actually uh, referring back, um, this isn't, uh, this is referring back to Exodus 24, So if you go to Exodus 24, and it's verses like 3 through 8, I think, uh, and I'll read verses 6 through 8. It says, uh, so Moses, so God had just established these rules and commandments of how how this covenant was going to work between God, and he had kind of outlined the terms, and this is what it says. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood and threw it against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing... um, in the hearing of the people and all the people and all, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now we have to understand that even this first covenant was a means of grace, right? 
It was a, a means of God's interaction with humanity because our sin had separated us. Humanity's sin had separated them from God. And so any interaction had to be on God's terms. And so what he did is he, by his grace, by his mercy, established this covenant between himself and Israel. And he laid out the terms. So he gave the law to Moses. And Moses got up in front of everybody and read off the law and said, this is what God's requiring. The people said, let's do this. We're going to do this. We're going to be obedient. So in that interaction, what happened? He took the blood of oxen and he sprinkled it on the people. The text says too that he sprinkled it on the book. He's he's purifying. He's saying this is the representation that a new that a covenant has been established between God and man. God gave the Moses the law, and then they sprinkled the with the blood of calves and goats to purify the people at the start of this covenant. So this building that we're in was built in 1998. And uh, it kind of throughout that year, and then the first service was held in this. I guess I'm on a history thing, like giving you all the history, my history, the, this building's history. But the the first service in this building was December 6 of 1998, and then in January, on January 10th, there was a building dedication ceremony, and so it was kind of a way to kind of say like this is a new chapter in the life of our church, and we're dedicating it to God. Now. I wasn't here for that. Um, I was still back in Tennessee, uh, but I've seen pictures from that. I've seen pictures from the first service and, and all of that. And in none of those pictures is there an altar. In none of those pictures are there dead animal carcasses everywhere. In those pictures, the people are not sprinkled with blood. These pews, thankfully, have not been sprinkled with blood. Why is that? It's because Jesus' death means that we don't have to do that. But this, this is exactly, before Jesus arrived on the scene, this is exactly what God required of Moses and the people. It required, because Jesus had not yet come in the flesh, He had not yet given his life, but in the means of God's grace in the Mosaic covenant, he said, I want you to sprinkle the people to set them apart for this. The first covenant was inaugurated by blood. It was a new gateway, this sprinkling of blood that provided purification, unlocked a new way of relating to God because a life had been given. But the new covenant, as I was just talking about, too, was also inaugurated by blood. I don't know if you caught it when I was reading it, but in verse 20, does that sound familiar? Moses, as he's doing this, the author kind of changes some of the tenses here, but he says, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. For those of you who like have been followers of Jesus for a while or, or know your Bible, uh, what, what does that make you think of? Does it make you think of Matthew 26, verse 28, 27 and 28? And he, Jesus, took a cup, 
And when he had given thanks to him, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for you for the, for, for, sorry, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. When did Jesus say this? At the Passover, right? So he was saying in the old covenant, everything was needed to be purified by the shedding of blood. And in this new covenant, this new way of relating to humanity, Jesus says, this is my blood poured out for you, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This shed blood is establishing a new covenant between God and man. Jesus is saying, my death and my blood is opening up something new and better. And verse 22 concludes by saying, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Now, in the, old, in the Mosaic law, there were, there were lots of different ways and rules and regulations on how sin was to be atoned for, how peace between God and man was to be established. And almost every one of them involved the shedding of blood, whether it's a bull, goat, calf, uh, or, or even birds. There's a handful of, of uh, exceptions that are made um, for, so like in, I think it's Leviticus, what is it? Leviticus 5, uh, verses 11 through 13. Um, some of the really, the people who were the most economically challenged, the poorest in, in the Israelite community, they couldn't even afford a bird, so they would be able to present a, a grain offering a, a, um, on behalf to, to atone for their sin. But that was the exception by far in the, in the Mosaic Covenant, almost everything had to be purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And I want us to camp on this verse for just a minute because this is a weighty verse. Because as we think back, death was not part of God's original creation, right? That was not part of what happened. He created a beautiful world that had no death, no sickness, no pain, no suffering. And yet death is present. And how did that happen? Death came into the world because of sin. And death is judgment. Death is judgment. Sin is like an infection of humanity. It's tainted us. It taints everything that we touch. And what is tainted needs to be purified. Sinful humanity can't just waltz up to a holy God without any consequences. There has to be a purification first. And so God, in the terms of agreement with the people in the Old Testament, with the Israelites, said these are the terms by which you can approach him through the shedding of blood. Something or someone has to die. And last week we looked at kind of the very first sacrifice, right? It wasn't Cain or Abel. It was God killing an animal in order by his grace to clothe the nakedness of Adam and Eve. By sacrificing an innocent animal, the animal took the judgment on behalf of the person who sinned. And the blood was proof that a life had been given and a payment had been made. Leviticus 17:11 says this For the life of the flesh 
is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. Listen to this. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The blood is proof that a life has been given. How many of you guys have seen uh, the Marvel series or specifically Avengers Endgame? A couple of people are like embarrassed. They're like, I don't know, raising my hand. People are like, I love that movie. All right. So um, there is the spoiler alert coming up if you haven't seen it and you want to see it. But um, there's this one scene in particular. <laughs> Pastor Carl's like, la, 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 la. Uh, <laughs> so there's this one scene where uh, there's this planet called Vormir. And the Avengers are going and they're trying to collect all these different infinity stones in order to put them together so that they can defeat Thanos. And, uh, and so Black Widow and Hawkeye are given the task to go to Vormir to find the soul stone. So they're like, okay, we're going to go and we're going to battle and everything. They get there and uh, the stonekeeper says, uh, actually, you don't have to battle, but somebody has to die. <laughs> and they're like, what? And so it's a soul for a soul. Uh, so you have to sacrifice a soul in order to get the soul stone. And so spoiler alert, if uh, what happens is they kind of have this battle back and forth and Black Widow falls off this cliff and she dies. And all of a sudden, Hawkeye wakes up and he's like, hey, I have the soul stone. And then he goes back to the rest of the Avengers and he's like really sad because Black Widow had just died. But he's like, I have the soul stone. What is the proof that a life had been given? The soul stone, right? Like he showed up and it wasn't just like, I got nothing. It was like, no, like I have this stone and it proves that somebody died, right? The Mosaic covenant said there had to be proof that somebody died, but it wasn't a stone. It was the blood because the blood represents the life. And so anytime we see blood being sprinkled on people like that, the majority of the time, it's because it's to say that a life had been given. Without blood, without the giving of a life, there is no forgiveness of sin. But when a death was established and the blood was presented, it showed that a life had been sacrificed on behalf of the sinful person. And because of that sacrifice, forgiveness could be experienced. In the Old Covenant, it was a temporary forgiveness, pointing forward to a better sacrifice that would come. And we'll get into the ramifications of this more next week. But I want to let this really sink in for us this morning. Because I've quoted Hebrews 9.22 quite a few times in talking to people because um, it's a very powerful verse talking about without the, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. And I think super often, unfortunately, we think we can kind of approach forgiveness as pretty cheap. I think sometimes we think of forgiveness as just kind of like pretending it didn't happen. but that diminishes the gravity of sin. In our house, 
one of the things that we do to kind of help with this very subtly, uh, and we don't do it all the time. So, uh, but um, so like if if one of the boys or one of us messes up, and then we go to the other person and say, "I'm sorry for what I did and everything." What's the what's the very easy response to that? It's okay. But what we want to try to do is we want to try to say it's not okay <laughs> because sin is weighty. Sin has consequences. So what we do is we, we try to say, instead of it's okay, we say, I forgive you. And I think sometimes that's offered as like, I forgive you in the same sense as it's okay. But, um, but it's just a way for us to subtly kind of recognize sin is costly. It's painful. It has rippling effects. Sin is not okay. Sin doesn't stay contained to the one committing the sin, and it has consequences that ripple out. Forgiveness is not sweeping that sin and its effects under the rug and pretending like they didn't happen. Those sins have to be paid for. Because Israel sinned throughout the Mosaic Covenant, millions and millions of innocent animals had to die. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. But all of that was to point forward to a better sacrifice to come, a better purification that would come in the person and work of Jesus. I think a lot of times, like we hear these passages and like we kind of look at the immediate parallel between, okay, Jesus, we're excited that he's here. We're glad that we're not under the old covenant and killing a bunch of animals right now and all of that. But like, I think sometimes we still, we don't really try to purify ourselves by the killing of animals. But I do think it's still a struggle for us that we think that we have to purify ourselves from sin. I think that's way more subtle and way more prevalent than like, I'm not going around being like, ah, oh, I, I need to kill a turtle dove. But I, I think I do a lot of times walk around thinking like, oh, I, need to, I need to pay for my sin in some way. Because I messed up. So I bargain with God. God, I'm going to do this better. I'm going to do this more. The problem is this. With, with this is that the, the core of that is that I can fix what's wrong. And the truth is, we can't fix what's wrong. We need a better sacrifice. We need a better purification. We can't fix what's wrong. But Jesus' death provides what we need to be purified, to have forgiveness. Jesus' death is what was needed to unlock the eternal inheritance, and his blood is the only one who needs to be shed to, purifies, to purify sin. He's established a new covenant in his own blood. Our inheritance is because of Jesus. Our redemption is because of Jesus. The old covenant was pointing to Jesus, and the new covenant was inaugurated by Jesus. It's the blood of Jesus that provides a better purification and provides forgiveness of sin. Our best efforts can't do that. But Jesus inaugurated a new way of relating, and by his blood, we are made pure. So what does this mean for us practically? If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, I think I have three application points for you. The first one is to know Christ and his sacrifice. 
Like seriously, uh, I used the word marinade earlier this week uh, to talk about um, kind of letting like, you know, like when you marinate meat, it sits in the juice, right? And then it sucks it all up and then it becomes delicious. Um, marinate in these truths. Sit in them. Let them penetrate your mind and hearts. Listen to some of these, just from these verses today. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are called by Jesus. You're a beneficiary in God's will. You possess an eternal inheritance. You are redeemed from your transgressions. You're in a covenant relationship with God through Jesus. And because of the costly death of Jesus, you are cleansed from sin. And you've been forgiven. Sit in that. Let it soak into your mind and your heart. We did nothing to deserve this. It's Jesus. It's his grace. It's his mercy. Jesus did the work. Jesus' death accomplished this. And we get to receive the benefits. And just like with uh, any inheritance, physical inheritance, um, sometimes we can, uh, you know, have you ever seen somebody who receives a physical inheritance and then they think that they did something to deserve it? What happens? They're kind of like a spoiled heir, right? Like going around like, I deserve this. This is mine. What we receive through the death of Jesus is not because of us. It's because of what he's done. And when we live, when we understand that and let that sink into us, we can live with a deep humility and worshipful gratitude, knowing where we'd be without Jesus and where we are because of him. So the first thing, like I said, is to know Christ and his sacrifice. Let that sink into you. Secondly, be honest with other believers as you grow in Christ together. Be open and honest with other believers. The reality is sometimes we forget these same. Sometimes we can act like the spoiled, entitled heirs where we hoard these riches to ourselves. And sometimes we diminish these truths. Sometimes we forget them. Sometimes we doubt. Oftentimes we revert back to our own performance or our own efforts. But God has put other followers of Jesus in each of our lives so that we can be real with them when we doubt, when we struggle, when we forget. We can pray with one another and we can look to remind one another of the gospel because we are so easy, like we are so prone to forget. Third, share the sufficiency of Jesus' death with someone in your life this week. We saw in the text that this inheritance, this eternal inheritance, this purification is for who? It's for those who are called. You ready for this? There are people in each of our lives that God wants to call through us sharing the gospel. There are people in each of our lives that God wants to call and he wants to use us as a conduit of that message to them. So who is one person in your life who's not yet a follower of Jesus that you will interact with this week? Maybe it's a kid. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a family member. Who's somebody that does not yet know 
who Jesus is that you will be interacting with this week. I want us to pray this morning that God would open up doors, whether this week or in the coming weeks, for us to be able to share that good news with them. Pray for them by name and look for those opportunities. And if you're listening to this and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, there's a couple of things that like a reality check that we need to understand. You may have the best inheritance coming for you with like, uh, you know, parents, grandparents, whoever, you know, money, cars, property, stocks, whatever. But spiritually speaking, if you have not yet committed your life to following Jesus, you're not listed as a beneficiary on his will. You're not able to experience the eternal inheritance, the eternal redemption, the eternal life and salvation that he provides. The other thing is that the cost of your sin is great, just like the cost of my sin is great. This isn't something that we can fix with our own strivings because it requires a blood sacrifice. It requires the shedding of blood, not effort. It requires the death of someone who is innocent. But the good news is that Jesus may be calling you even now. You may be one of those who is called. And if you are, you receive an eternal inheritance. You can let go of your effort and rely fully on the work of Jesus Christ and his death. To be purified from sin, something or someone has to die. But because of Jesus' death and only because of his shed blood, can you be purified from sin and be made right with your creator? Jesus has done all the work. He's done it. We can rest in that and you can believe in that. And maybe this morning or whenever you're watching this later, maybe he's calling you to receive that eternal inheritance through putting your faith, not in your own works, but through the shed blood of Jesus. Jesus' death activates our inheritance and provides our purification under the new covenant. So let's be a people. Oh gosh, my prayer is that we would be a people that would marinate in this, not keep it to ourselves, share it with others, that we let those truths, that we would remind each other of that as well. And as a result of that, that we would live regular lives of humility, gratitude, and worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just come before you, and even, even our access to you even now is being mediated by, by not just the great high priest, but the lamb who was slain. And God, I thank you that we live at a point in time where we can rest in that. God, that we're not living in a time where we rely on the temporary purification, the temporary forgiveness offered by the death, the shed blood of animals, but we rely on a once and for all sacrifice through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that we would let that truth sink into us, that we would want to overflow in worship and sharing that with others. And God, that you would be glorified through it all. And I pray, God, that if there are people here who don't yet know you, who have not put their faith in you, God, that you would call them to yourself, that they can experience the same inheritance, the same purification that we experience, not because of us, but because of who Jesus is and what he's done. May your name be magnified. May we live in worship to you. 
We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.